BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No, it's not going to hurt. Here we go. The COVID-19 pandemic may have finally met its match. This is a super safe vaccine. COVID-19 vaccines. This is like historic. It's patriotic. I'm in. Get this junk over with. But not everyone is eager to get an injection. I'm nervous about it. I just don't trust it. Honestly, the biggest thing is, is you can't trust the media. And that could affect how long it takes for the country to reach herd immunity. If a significant number of people do not get vaccinated, that would delay where we would get to that endpoint. On today's episode of Open Record, the tension between vaccine excitement. I got my shot, everybody. And vaccine hesitancy. I'm never going to get it. It's an issue that's been generations in the making. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, March 25th. And as of this morning, more than 15% of people who live in Wisconsin have now been fully vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. More than one-fourth of Wisconsinites, nearly 28%, have received at least one dose. The numbers are even more encouraging among seniors age 65 and older, where more than half are now fully vaccinated. More than three-quarters have had at least one shot. But we're still a long way from so-called herd immunity. And now attention is beginning to shift to those who are holding back and reluctant to get a COVID-19 vaccine. So before we jump into what inspired your most recent story, Brian, and how that worked out, let's talk about vaccine hesitancy. What is it? And realistically, how concerned do we have to be about this? Well, there's a whole range of sort of what would fall under that umbrella of vaccine hesitancy. You've got people who are just not sure because this is such a new thing. They want to wait and see how it plays out for others before they decide You've got others who have never really been big fans of vaccines of any kind. They don't get the flu vaccine. They're, they're really not uh, big into getting them in the first place. And then you've got the adamant, I am never getting this. This is a government conspiracy. They want to control us in some way. So you've got a big range from those who are just kind of playing wait and see to those who are saying no way, never. And in fact, I don't think other people should. So there, there is a range there. But whatever the reasons are right now, there is a chunk of people who are not getting the vaccines, even if they're eligible. And we now know a lot more people are eligible. This is really, I think, where the, the, the test is going to come in, because up until now, you've had these limited groups, phase 1A, which was healthcare workers and, and long-term care workers and, and residents, and then phase 1B, which started to bring in some essential workers like teachers and others. And now you've got a, a wide swath of the state because of all of these people who are 
16 and older who have certain health conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity, and, and obesity is measured in a pretty loose way, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who fall under the, the you know, whatever the BMI level is, a lot of people who qualify, who we don't think of, I think if you looked at them, wouldn't think of them as by any means overweight or obese. So a lot of people fall into the eligible categories now. I think it's a couple of million Wisconsinites, if not more. And so that means a lot of people can get the shots. And we're seeing more vaccines that are in the state. The question now becomes, okay, if it's available, does that necessarily mean everyone's going to get one? And we know the answer to that is no. There are a certain number of people who won't. The question that really prompted this story was that one, though. How many? How many people are there who don't want the vaccine, whether they're just waiting for now or whether they are adamant that they will never get it? And I know the big question you and I were talking about as you were looking into how to do the story was, how do you measure that? Because we like numbers, we like data. So so where did you go to try to get the data? Well, first of all, I'm a data nerd. And I will call myself that. My son, who's 13, yesterday said, you know what, Dad? Nobody calls themselves nerds. And I said, <laughs> I do. And I'm okay with that. I love data because I think data... It can lie if it's used wrong. I mean, you can lie with statistics, but data tells us a lot that we can't see just anecdotally. In journalism, we do a lot of storytelling where we tell you about one person's experience as a representative example. But data gives us a big picture. And what we have so much data on right now is how many people have been infected with COVID-19? How many people have been hospitalized? How many have died? And now we also have great data on how many people have been vaccinated, whether they've gotten Pfizer or Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or, or, or whether they have, uh, you know, they fit into a certain age group, age category. Have they gotten one dose? Have they gotten two? There's all this data. What we don't know is who's had the opportunity to get one but turned it down or who has said, I'm never going to get it even when I am eligible. No one's measuring that. And, and actually, that was one of the first steps here was for me to find out, is anyone measuring that? So... I interviewed uh, Julie Willems Van Dyke, who's been on television a lot. She's the deputy secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. And one of the questions I asked her was just that. Are you tracking vaccine hesitancy? Are you tracking how many people have been offered a shot but said no? And it was clear that that's not part of their data tracking right now. She said it would be very difficult for them to do that for a number of reasons. And that may well be true. Logistically, it might be tough. But the fact that they're not really even trying suggests that even if there is a methodology or a way to do it, they're not going to find it anytime soon. So there's that question out there of what is that hesitancy rate? And we needed to come up with some way to at least measure a slice of it. And that's where this story came in. And, and you and I discussed this at length, Amanda. How do we do that? We can't ask hospitals to, well, we can ask. I mean, we can ask hospitals to give <laughs> we us. We can ask them whatever we want, but they don't have to give us the answer. They don't have to give us those answers. They are not public entities. They don't, they're not run by the government. They, are, they, aren't, they aren't subject to public records requests. Um, same thing with long-term care facilities, nursing homes, assisted living. They don't have to respond to requests for their internal records. So we looked at what government agencies have been high up on the list where there would already be some data, and we came up with first responders police and fire. And so what did you do when you kind of narrowed it down to that group? Well, and even that was, uh, while that's a, a narrow slice of the population overall, uh, there are hundreds of police and fire departments across the state of Wisconsin. And it would be 
uh, logistically impossible or certainly highly unwieldy to send out open records requests to hundreds of police and fire departments. All we needed, though, was this was going to be a representative sample anyway. What we needed was some examples, and we decided to go with the five largest cities in southeastern Wisconsin and ask their fire and police departments if they've been tracking vaccine or vaccination rates, and if so, would they release records to us with the names, of course, redacted, because these are health records. And HIPAA would say you can't obviously just tell me that, you know, you know firefighter so-and-so did or didn't get his vaccination. But in terms of the rates, how many of your employees have or haven't been vaccinated, we asked for that information, and we got really good response from the fire departments. Not so great from most of the police departments, though we did at least get one who gave us useful data. And what did that data that you did get show? What it showed is a range of vaccination uh, rates at those departments, particularly the fire departments. It ranged between 50% and 90% roughly and, and, and anywhere in between. And the one police department that responded, their vaccination rate was about 50%. Now, you might ask, well, did that just might mean they haven't gotten to some of them yet, right? In the vast majority of these cases, remember, first responders were in some cases part of phase 1A if they had any sort of EMS, uh, you know, portion of their job description, they were in phase 1A and the rest were put into phase 1B. So they've all had the opportunity to get a vaccine by now. So the question was how many have been vaccinated and how many have said no thanks. And they can't be forced, by the way. The, the police and fire departments cannot say you must get this, um, but they can, to varying degrees, lean on their employees a little bit. Okay, well, why not? And, and, and tell me more about this. What we know from what we've seen in these tracking uh, spreadsheets and other things we've gotten is that they were tracking them in many cases. Um, for example, Kenosha Fire Department had two columns in a spreadsheet. There's, you know, the date they got it or, or, did, they, or did they reject it? Um, same thing with some of the others. So it would actually say rejected or declined. These are people who consciously said, I don't want the vaccine. And Kenosha had the highest uh, rate of vaccinations so far. It was a couple of weeks ago when we got the data, 88%. And that's really good as out of any population to have 88%. But that still means 12% of the firefighters, paramedics, uh, EMT uh, or EMS workers in the Kenosha Fire Department are not vaccinated. And these are the people who are literally going into people's homes who have COVID-19 to care for them, to respond to 911 calls. 12% um, of them are not vaccinated. But as we got to other departments, that number got higher and higher. And it was Milwaukee Fire Department where we found, at least at last count, that number was roughly 50%. Half of the fire department not vaccinated. And what are some of the reasons or theories for that? Well, we interviewed an assistant fire chief for Milwaukee Fire Department, Joshua Parrish, who um, talked a lot about there being a whole spectrum of reasons that people may or may not want to get the vaccine. And that ranges from, as we said earlier, those who just think it's too new and I want to wait and see. But he also talked about things like long lasting conspiracy theories that have been around since long before even the COVID-19 pandemic, the so-called anti-vaxxers who just aren't supporters of vaccinations to begin with. Um, and then you've got those who are, maybe they have political reasons for it. And then there are others. And in an urban department in particular, uh, Joshua Parrish is an African-American assistant fire chief. And he talked about there being a, a population of firefighters um, who 
have a hesitancy that is based in history. Um, in the United States, there was something known as the Tuskegee study in which the U.S. federal government conducted a study of African-American males. It was a study of the spread of syphilis or the, the, the treatment of syphilis, but they didn't treat it. They essentially watched a bunch of African-American men for 40 years as they died from syphilis. And they didn't know that they were... And, and th those participants were not fully informed of the purpose of the study or of their options to exit the study or of their options to get treatment for their syphilis. The government watched them die. And it wasn't until 1972 it was discovered that so many of these people had been allowed to suffer this disease and to pass away without getting proper treatment for the sake of science. Uh, that that ultimately resulted in the study being ended in 1972, um, and and a lot has been done since then in the scientific community to uh, to change the requirements of informed consent when you participate in a study. But that's left lasting impacts in it, in terms of trust of vaccinations, trust of the the healthcare community um, in in that population. So that's sort of something that's just sort of baked into uh, some people's experience, and and that's. It's not the factor. I don't want it to be uh, viewed as though this is the thing that's preventing Milwaukee firefighters from getting a vaccine, but it's one additional factor that Assistant Chief Parrish brought up and that maybe you wouldn't face in, say, you know, a, another fire department, maybe Waukesha, for instance, that might have uh, a population of firefighters that is uh, not as heavily African-American. So it's just another factor, but there are a lot of factors that play into this. What I noticed about Milwaukee Fire Department in comparison to Kenosha that stood out to me, though, was the approach in terms of this is your decision. It's totally up to you. We'll educate you on the science. We'll give you information. We'll even encourage you. But your decision is up to you. And after that, we're hands off. Kenosha Fire Department had a little different approach. The, the EMS division chief who I spoke to, uh, Nick Eshman, said... I want to know. I'm tracking this because I want to know who's not getting the shot, and I want to be able to go visit them and say why. Why are you not comfortable, and what can I tell you to to educate you, to, to make you feel more comfortable? Uh, because he feels it's that important. Now, he is also someone who has a degree in epidemiology. He's very close to the science on this, and he feels very strongly about the importance of the vaccine. So he said it was that ability to follow up with people and maybe lean on them a little bit and educate them uh, that got them to that 88%. Um, and I, I lean on maybe a little bit of a strong term because that has a connotation that may sound like he pressured them. He says, no, if they said, I just don't want it, fine. He encouraged them, come back when you're ready. But he definitely had a little more aggressive approach in terms of follow-up to say, man, why not? This is important. We need to do this and we need to set the example. Well, and that brings me to why someone who is not a first responder or does not have a first responder in their family would care about this story you know in part we have more research that does suggest that the vaccine can help to at least slow the transmission of the virus but there also is the idea of this being indicative of a bigger picture right well and that was the point of this story was not that what first responders do or don't do is, is any more important than anybody else, although we certainly know that they are people on the front line, so you would expect that uh, as a department you would want your members to be uh, protected and, and also not to be out in the community furthering the spread. But it was really a question of if the people on the front lines of the pandemic, the, the health care providers, the emergency care providers, 
if they aren't getting it, what does that mean for the rest of us? What does that mean for others who are still unsure? And there are a lot of people who are not conspiracy theorists, who are not anti-vaxxers, quote unquote, who are still very hesitant about this vaccine because they say it's just too new. It's still experimental. It's not technically approved by the FDA. None of these are. They are approved for emergency use. They are not fully approved. And so in, in that sense, they are technically experimental drugs. And so you do have people who say, I'm not anti-vaccination. I'm just not sure I'm ready for this yet. And there's a, there's a chunk of them. So the question was, if the first responders are hesitant, what about everybody else? And what does that say? What are we going to see now that we're reaching the point where there may soon be more vaccines available than there are people willing to get them? I want to go back to something you said about Milwaukee, um, a phrase you used, at last check. And obviously for any of these fire departments and um, police departments and any public record we get tends to be a, a snapshot in time because the data can change. But specifically with Milwaukee, it, it's more than it just being a, a snapshot in time that there's another bigger issue with how they're tracking this or not tracking this. Yeah, and I want to say Fire Chief Aaron Lipsky, I am told by one of the assistant fire chiefs that that he was the one who wanted them to track this. He did want to track this within his department. But the fire department, and I didn't understand this going in, my assumption was firefighters have been trained as vaccinators and therefore they're vaccinating their own personnel. As it turned out, that was not the case. Uh, firefighters were not the ones vaccinating other firefighters. The Milwaukee Health Department is in charge of vaccinating all city of Milwaukee employees, including firefighters. And so when I, let's say I'm a Milwaukee firefighter, when firefighter Brian Polson were, were to go in to get a shot, the Milwaukee Health Department has my health record. And the city attorney in the city of Milwaukee offered an opinion, an advisory opinion that other cities apparently haven't either considered or just didn't come to the same conclusion and said, you can't give that information out to the other departments. As the health department, you can't tell the fire department which members have or haven't been vaccinated. That's their private health record. And so whether it is the Department of Public Works, whether it's the Parks Department or the Fire Department or the Police Department, the health department could no longer give that information out. So in early to mid-February, the city attorney told the health department, stop sharing it. And that meant that the other departments, including fire and police, could no longer track that information. Now, I say police, I'm, I'm making an assumption there because they're city employees as well, but we have not heard anything back from Milwaukee police on our open records request. No response at all. They are one of the three departments that didn't respond to our request out of the 10. Um, there were two other departments, I, Kenosha Police, and I want to say it was Waukesha Police. I believe that's the case. It was Waukesha Police ha that have not responded with data. Everybody else sent us data. Racine Police, it was so heavily redacted, we really couldn't make anything out of it. Um, there was a spreadsheet that was all black lines. Um, but the others, including West Dallas Police, who had about a 50% vaccination rate, roughly, and then the fire departments all did. But... In the end, Milwaukee was tracking this until mid-February and then could no longer track it. So the assumption would be, since that time, more firefighters have come forward and said, yeah, actually, I want the shot after all. So maybe it's 60%, maybe it's 55%, maybe it's 70%, though, I don't know, they didn't seem to have that kind of a thought. We don't know. 
We know it's lower than the others, and, and certainly it leaves a question of, of how many of those firefighters are still unprotected. Well, and it leaves a question of if, if that's the policy, it, correct me if I'm wrong, at any given point, city department heads don't know how many of their own people have been vaccinated. So how do they make staffing decisions? I think that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to that. I did ask uh, Jeff Fleming, a spokesperson for the city, about this, and he said, you know, this was the city attorney's opinion. And when I talked to the fire department about that, I mean, do you even in Kenosha, I said, when you've got 12 percent of your people who aren't vaccinated, does that affect how you staff fire trucks or how you staff an ambulance or how you staff different shifts? And he said, really, it doesn't. They still got to do the same job. They've been doing it throughout the pandemic. They have personal protective gear. Same in in Milwaukee. They have personal protective gear. They have other protective measures. And they're carrying out business as usual. You would still think that in the long run, it would be helpful to know as a department who has the vaccination and who doesn't. But as of right now, it sounds like they're not going to get that information unless it's volunteered by the employee to a supervisor. They're not going to get that information. I want to get into a little bit of the journalism inside baseball here. Um, And maybe you and I are the only ones who find this interesting. Maybe other people find it interesting. But you and I had a lot of conversations surrounding the script about, you know, when we're talking about hesitancy and specifically when we're talking about anything with a conspiracy theory or, um, you know, someone who's expressing a, a point of view that appears to contradict the science. How do we report in a way that gives people a full and accurate picture of what's going on and why people think the way they think without furthering some of those conspiracy theories. It's not an easy balance to strike. I may be one who, as you asked that question, and you know this because we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm one who's more on the end of put the information out there and let everyone decide. Because some, when we start to make judgments about what's a conspiracy and what's not, that can also be dangerous, right? Because we become sort of gatekeepers. If there's clear proof or evidence, I mean, that's really, that's what I love about our job is that we can provide, our job is to look for data and evidence and tell you when we have it and tell you when we don't and why we don't. Um, conspiracies tend to not have evidence. In fact, that's what makes them conspiracies is you can't prove or disprove them. Um, So I think one of the things is you make sure that when you present something, you back it up with what does the evidence show? What what does the data say? Um, And if someone is saying, for example, and there was a soundbite in the story from a Wind Lake firefighter who said, you know, in his opinion, I, I think, you know, maybe getting the vaccine is is more dangerous than, than getting the disease itself. And he was talking about his own experience because he had had COVID and he, he thought it was pretty mild. And But I thought in, in many cases, the way we presented it here, that was balanced by the fact that this is the same guy who is talking to a news reporter and says, well, you can't trust the media. I, there's some question there. About, I, clearly, he wasn't really basing this on, on, on data and science. This was his offhand opinion. It wasn't a suggestion that, in fact, there is data to back up the idea that there is um, more danger to the vaccine than the virus. And the data is very clear. There is not more danger to the vaccine than there is uh, with the virus. I I will say this. I've had a number of people since the story aired who've presented me with questions about, well, what about the reports of people dying from the COVID-19 vaccine? Haven't you seen these vaccine adverse events report, uh, adverse events reports? And, And I have seen them. Um, what what uh, anyone who looks those up would also see is a number of warnings from the CDC that that data does not in- indicate causation. 
So you've had tens of millions of people around the world who've been given a vaccination. And uh, I think it's around, last I saw, about 1,900 people have died after receiving a vaccine. That does not mean they died because of the vaccine. And understand that the vast majority of people who are vaccinated to begin with were really, really old people. So it's natural that some of them are going to die within a short period of time after getting the vaccine. And sure enough, the CDC says that those 1,900 cases have had in-depth medical follow-up and examination, and they have found no link between the vaccine and those deaths. So they report these things to these adverse event systems to make sure if a, a trend shows up that it will be identified as early as possible. But that doesn't mean when those things are reported that it is indicative of a cause. And in this case, it hasn't been. But even if, if you imagine for a moment that all 1,900 people who died actually died because of the vaccine, the death rate from the vaccine, and I want to be clear, none of them have been linked to the vaccine that I know of. I haven't seen any reports of that, so if someone listens and wants to correct me, they can. But from what the CDC's reports say, none of them have been linked to that. But even if they were, it represents a rate of 0.0018%. The death rate from COVID-19 is 1.8% in the United States. Literally 1,000 times more deadly than the vaccine would be, even if those were true. So I, I think, as you said, when you raise those kinds of potential conspiracy theories, I think it's important to back that up and say, look, the data says otherwise. All right, this is the part of the podcast where we go off the record. We're getting a little more personal, having a little more fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. And to ask us the surprise question, we are joined once again by Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hey, hey. What do you got for us today? You know, this one is, feels a little a little juvenile. Is this the one you had prepared last week? Or did you just no, decide not I'm to gonna, do that? I'm no. Gonna, I'm going to save that one. I still have it. Here, my po- You can't see it now because you're listening, but you have my post-it notes. She's but, holding up a pink post-it uh, I'm gonna note save to the, her Zoom camera. I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that one. All right. For another time. Um, but this one is fairly simple. What is your favorite, most favorite smell in the whole wide world? You know what? That's an, it, I don't know why this seems like I just read somewhere, someone asking a similar question, but it was, it was something to the effect of like, if there was one smell that, or maybe, maybe you know what it was? It was, it was, it was probably just one of those stupid Facebook things, quizzes, but it was like, if you could have two smells, that were the only smells you could smell the rest of your life, what would they be? So this is what, your favorite. <laughs> With this question, we only man. get one smell, though. Yeah. <laughs> you can have a very close second, because the more I thought about it, I was like, ooh, I kind of have two. <laughs> so. Well, because it's, like, it's like picking it's like picking your favorite movie or your favorite song. You go, yeah, but then what about this one? And, you know, so picking the best is, is always tough. My favorite smell, I mean, it, it's sad that I just, what keeps popping in my head is pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great smell. Like how can yeah. I mean, no no you know what it's got to be it's got to be bacon. Bacon's a good smell. I know smell. I my so That's the first two smell. I go for are, are food obviously but ba- I mean when you smell bacon you're just happy. Right? It I mean, is I guess it's unless good. I guess unless you're a vegetarian maybe not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I love the smell of bacon. Plain and simple. I like it. Amanda. I don't know. My toddler's been really clingy lately so does, does is there a smell associated with being by yourself? <laughs> 
Because that sounds pretty good right now. That's, an, that's the uh, uh, sort of the it, absence of a smell. Yeah, the kids yeah, are, and I don't mean to yeah. disparage any There's children. There's no but, you like know. sticky. Yep, for the record, no I, hands, I no love my butter. child, but you know, be, being a parent, um, the you know, smell one of, my, of peace. <laughs> yeah, the smell and serenity. Of, the smell of <laughs> after bedtime. Um, I, I I really like the smell of the ocean. That's like a relaxing smell, but. I don't think I could smell that all the time. It's like the smell when you first like walk onto the beach is great, but I don't want to smell that all day, every day. So I don't know if that's just because I really need a vacation. Um, I, I don't know that that necessarily. Very different from be... a Lake Michigan beach in summer with fresh algae. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole different smell. Yes. Um, I like, I like the smell of like pine trees or like Christmas trees um that's a good smell i could i could i could if i had to like smell that forever that would be fine um oh i i have a good one that i don't know if it's gonna i don't want to steal your thunder sarah so i'm gonna let you go first but i've got one in my pocket yeah maybe a close (laughs) second would be fresh brewed coffee that's a good one yeah 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 as as you were talking about this stuff i was like yeah actually coffee is probably my number three Mm-hmm. Might even be close to number two. Yeah, so. I think I think that's what I'm gonna go. I think coffee's a close second, but I think I'm gonna go with like that Christmas tree smell. Yeah, I I really I also thought food at first, so I went garlic. I love the smell of garlic. I love eating garlic, but I also love smelling. What about it. the smell of someone who has eaten? <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not mad at it. I mean, I, I like garlic, so I, I get it. Um, but I just, I like it. I like it when it's roasting, when it just cooks, when it's in something. It's just, uh, it's so good. Um, and then my second, which a close second, I really, and it happens here in Wisconsin because we get humidity in the summer, but there's something about going outside right in the morning or like at night after the sun goes down and it's humid and it has that smell, that like Florida kind of smell, like it's just humid air and it... I don't know. It just reminds me of like being on vacation, even if I'm just stepping out on my back porch. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it's like a comforting, yummy little humid smell. Mm, the <laughs> smell weird. of mosquitoes attacking you on the front porch. <laughs> I didn't say I was staying out for long. I just no, said. I, I have one. When, when I tell you guys this one, I think you're both going to go, oh, yeah. But, you know, those those metal cased markers. <laughs> The like dry erase type, but they've got the like the metal casing, and you pop those open. Are you I mean, telling I'm us tr- you like to smell markers? I, I, I love the smell. Sniff. I am not encouraging huffing, um, yeah. but I but I but just that. I mean, I think it goes back really. If I think about it, there may be sort of a childhood memory about this going back to when my dad worked in an office, and they had like a conference room where they would do. Uh, he 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 worked on. Um, environmental compliance where they would have to draw boilers and other systems and smokestacks. So they have to draw sketches. Well, they would do it on a giant dry erase board and they had those metal markers. And when dad had to go into the office, I would go in with him. And what would I do? I'd sit and draw on the dry erase board. And when I popped off those things, I I probably went home every time I visited his office with marker on the bottom of my nose (laughs) because I would smell them. And you you bump it once in a while. So my mom could tell if I'd been to my dad's office because I'd come home with, you know, marker on the bottom of my nose. But, oh, I I love, love, love that smell. I I feel that way about gasoline. I have a weird, like, I like the. I'm learning a lot about you, too. (laughs) 
Gasoline smells good. It's so weird. I can't even believe. Okay. <laughs> now, the one other thing I will say is I, I, I love, and, and, and my wife is a little different because I think smells can overwhelm her in this way, but I love walking into like a Bath and Body Works or the candle area at Kohl's or something Ooh, like that. That can be too much. you just have all of the, oh, see, I think it's I even like going – I hate to say this is almost embarrassing to admit. I like going down the cleaning uh, products aisle at like Meyer because it's just got those scents and I think it's just wonderful and clean and it's great. But Gasoline, still, cleaning products, and markers. Markers. Got but, it. But, cool. none, but, but still, none of it measures up the bacon. None of it That's measures – well, That's I'm grateful true. for that. Well, if you have a question you'd like to submit – for our off-the-record segment, um, if you want to know more about Brian and Sarah's love for the smell of gasoline <laughs> markers and cleaning products, um, or if you want to suggest a topic we should discuss, an issue we should investigate, please send us an email. And you can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and executive producer Sarah Smith extraordinaire. Uh, please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson, and for Amanda St. Hilaire, we'll be back again next week. Mm-hmm.